Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. It's so good to be with you again this sunny Friday afternoon. We've had a lot of sunny Fridays this summer, most of them roughly a thousand degrees. Uh, Today's a little bit cooler. Listeners, thanks for being here. You only have me today and uh, a couple of special guests. Both Bailey and Scott are otherwise indisposed on this sunny Friday afternoon. So uh, you're just stuck with Andy Moore on the radio, Uh, but we're glad you're here. And I'm really excited actually to have these guests uh, because they're both going to join us today to talk about some really relevant uh, topics that are both both relevant and timely, which is important this year. Uh, As I suspect most of you know, earlier this week was the primary runoff. Um, You have probably already tuned in to what those results were. Um, the you know the big ones are that on the Democratic side, uh, Madison Horn won the nomination for the race uh, against James Langford for U.S. Senate, and on the Republican side, Ryan Walters won the race for state superintendent um, um, of public education. So they advance on to November. There, of course, is a bunch of other down ballot races. Oh, Leslie Osborne won the race for the. Republican nomination for labor commissioner as well. Um, most of these folks have general election opponents in November. Um, so don't forget to vote. You've got just about a month left to register to vote. If by some chance you're listening and not registered, um, let's get that taken care of today, shall we? You can print the form off the election board. You can go to our website and uh, we'll print it off for you. If we have to, we'll get it done. Uh, or flag me down on the road. I usually have like a package of them in my car, because you never know when you might need to register someone to vote. Okay. Um, on that note, we're going to move on to our first guest, which is State Senator Julia Kurt. Welcome to the show, Senator Kurt. Glad to be here. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. Uh, so, Senator Kurt, I know you and I have had this conversation off and on for months um, about budget and taxes specifically, and not just what they are, but like the process by which we decide what our tax rates are and what we're going to tax, what we're not going to tax, how we're going to give tax rebates, um, those kinds of things. And I, I understand that you had requested this as an interim study this year, but that um, yours was one of them that wasn't approved. Is that correct? Yeah, right. So actually what happened was, you know, we've got a surplus and, you know, it's a very weird year with all the pandemic relief money coming in and the strange economic response to the pandemic. Um, And so there's a lot of talk about tax cuts and several were almost passed this session. Um, So the governor called us back in a special session to talk, to address tax cuts. Um, The legislature balked at that. The the Republican leadership balked at that. And they decided to put together their own working group. The House passed a bunch of bills. The Senate put together a working group to um, analyze the tax cuts they wanted to make. Well, Lo and behold, that working group is only made up of the majority party. Um, So they did not include any Democrats on that committee. And so I want to talk about it. I want to know. I want to analyze it with a holistic view to what we should be doing about our revenues. Um, So I did request an interim study. It did not get accepted by the pro tem. So I'm basically just doing a solo study with the kind of experts and public input that I would wish we would use when we're really making big decisions like this, you know? That's, uh, I mean, I like that idea, one, because there's so many things that I've learned about related to Oklahoma government and politics and civic engagement that don't exist, and I wish they did. And, you know, that's kind of a, a thing for let's fix this is just, well, if it doesn't exist, let's find a way to make it happen. And that's what you're doing with this, uh, with this study. And just a, a related question, is the legislature still technically in a special session right now, just not meeting? Right. Yeah, we're actually in two special sessions officially. So the one special session is the one the legislature called ourselves into, and that is for uh, American Rescue Plan monies and maybe economic development package. I'm hearing that that there might be money going there, too. Um, And then the other special session was called by the governor. um, And there's a big debate between the House and Senate about whether it is still in um, going. The Senate never signy died, never shut down, but the House signy died, but they sent us bills. And so the Senate claims that those bills can't move because they can't go back to the House. And there really is actually kind of an arcane process by which a physical bill is carried between the House and the Senate and to the governor's office. 
Um, it goes along with the electronic bill, but it's got to have all the signatures and all the certifications on it. And there's this way that things are received. And, you know, frankly, that's probably for good reason. So that somebody doesn't sneak a bill in, at, you know, one in the morning or something. Um, but basically we are in special session, but I don't know if we can actually do anything in that special session. That's funny. That reminds me, there's an episode of the West Wing where they bring the bill over and it's a kind of a formal process, but late at night where he comes in and has to say the thing about like, this is the bill, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I, there's something about the uh, pomp and circumstance of those kinds of things that I, harken back to an, a simpler time, right? Yeah, um, seriously. Well, it's kind of funny with the with the American Rescue Plan special session, we heard a bunch of bills in order to um, have the special session not need to last so long if we came back together. So we heard 50 shell bills in the House and Senate or something like that. And then they're going to get language put into them. So it's so it, it cuts shorter the amount of time we'd have to be back for special session. And ostensibly, they said they did that to save the public money. But it's kind of interesting to follow procedure on something like that when there's no content. We're not actually vetting it, which is the whole point of having those extra days. Um, and I kind of feel the same way about the tax stuff. So we have these very specific fragmented conversations. But taxes affect us all. And they affect how our state spends money. And it's going to affect us for years to come. So like, I feel like it should be a more in-depth conversation. We already have a legislature that doesn't have, we don't, we exempt ourselves from open meetings and open records. We allow the public to participate um, as we wish, so to speak. So basically nobody gets to testify. Nobody gets to submit testimony or witness or pro or for or against. Your only option is to talk to individual legislators. And that's not like most states, you know, most states allow a public participation in a different way. So I kind of think people um, don't get more informed in part because they can't really participate. Um, if, if you don't know if you're going to get to really be heard, then why even bother to do the work? Right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Last, I think it was last year, there was a couple of interim studies related to government transparency, specifically budget transparency, and then just open records, open meeting act transparency in general, um, at, at which I spoke. Um, and I know it was a joint interim study between house and Senate. And, you know, the outcome of that was like, oh, we have one of the least transparent budget processes. And as you mentioned, the legislatures exempted themselves from the transparency laws that apply to every other government agency. Uh, and, and it, you know, after being there myself, speaking and listening to the other speakers, it kind of walked away with the sense of like, we've got to do better. And it's, you know, when it comes to taxes, I think it's important because the only way the government gets money is through taxes, right? Like that's the, or fees as, you know, mm -hmm. do air quotes fees um, because off, you know, when is a fee is a tax is like a big right. debate at the state legislature. But if the public doesn't give money or, you know, corporations don't give money through taxes, the government has no money and thus cannot provide services to us all. That's the other piece. And I think there's a big disconnect between what we pay for and the benefits that we get back from that. Uh, and so I'm excited um, to learn a little bit more about what your study's doing and, and how you're going about doing it. So you mentioned talking to experts, but also to voters too, right? Yeah. I mean, what I ended up deciding was, you know, I struggle because I want to understand these things more thoroughly and I want to know what people think about it and have a better sense of the public's view. We really only hear from a few voices when it comes to taxes. And those tend to be people with lobbyists um, because they're paid to be up there and give us feedback and lobby for specific tax policy. Um, so I'm going to have a general public session on the evening of, of September 8th. It's in the evening. I'll, I'll post all this stuff on my Facebook and other pages. If people want to know, they can certainly reach out to my office. But so that'll be at the Capitol and I'm going to have, you know, certain questions that will guide that in terms of trying to understand from individuals what they view as fair and unfair and difficult and not difficult about their about their taxes. And I recognize that some of that may be logistical, just some of the difficulties of all the forms we have to fill out or the process or the way we have to pay it. You know, I'm open to it being logistical as well, because I know that's part of what we deal with as as individuals or as small businesses. But the bigger question of like, how do you view, do you feel like you're paying your part now? And are you okay with that? Um, those kinds of questions I want to hear from people about how they feel about taxes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that there's broad agreement that Oklahoma needs tax reform, right? Both like just the structure of how 
it, for example, that cities are almost entirely funded by sales tax and counties are funded through um, ad valorem or property tax. And then the state has the income tax. And there was a, in the beginning, <laughs> there was perhaps a reason for this division of where the taxes come from. But as the state has grown and evolved over the last hundred years, it's created some real inequality between these different levels of government and the amount of resources that they have at their disposal at their disposal to provide for their citizens. And then, you know, layered on top of all that is like how we fund schools as a whole separate algorithm, um, a funding formula that makes it all that much more complicated. So is your what outcome, I guess, are you hoping to get from your from your study? Well, I mean, some of it is practical. You know, what are people paying attention to? What fe- What's the most important to them? The other is just to have, you know, more feedback from constituents. Um, it's also just a way for me to study the issue so that I do a better job when, what questions should I be asking? Um, when, because what's probably going to happen is that the majority is going to come up with a proposal around tax cuts. It'll be dropped to us at the last second. And I'd like to have more feedback from the public now because I'm not going to have time to gather it then. Um, so, you know, what do people think is the, the least fair about our system and how do they think it could be improved? You know, I've heard from some people um, about specific aspects. Like I have a retiree who just thinks it's horribly unfair that any retirement income is, is taxed. And so we've talked a lot about that. Um, you know, those are the kinds of things I want to learn from people. Um, whether they think it's straightforward to pay taxes as is, or is it confusing? Um, I also am going to have a session specifically for small businesses. And the reason I'm doing that is because I think we hear more from big businesses. You know, that's generally who has lobbyists or who's super active in um, the big chambers that have the loudest voice at the Capitol. Um, Those are the folks who are weighing in all the time. The state chamber has agenda items related to to cutting or, or having incentives around corporate taxes every year. And so they have a very loud voice. So I'm going to have specific gathering on September 12th of small businesses with some small business resource people there, too, so that it's not just, hey, give me your ideas. It's also I'm going to have people from the Department of Rehabilitation Services there, Commerce Department, Small Business Development Center, a few others to, to offer services as well. Um, but just to hear from them, like what they're finding the most challenging. I watch, you know, my husband runs a small business, five employees. I'm pretty interested to watch what he struggles with and what's the most difficult for him. He's a typical sole proprietor. You know, his business um, gains or losses come through our personal taxes in the end. And so we frankly usually don't know to the last second what's really going to happen with our taxes. It's very unclear. So I think business owners are in a unique position. And there's so many self-employed people now who suddenly, oh, all of a sudden you're officially a business owner, even if you're getting paid from one entity all year as a contractor. Um, I'm, I'm curious to hear what's unique about small businesses in terms of their approach to their taxes. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, you know, I run a small business. Well, it's a single member LLC um, that I use for contracting with, well, with Let's Fix This and, you know, some other um, uh, projects I have going on. And um, I honestly, like, you know, the, the three times a year I talk to my accountant, I'm always like, oh, we should talk more often about tax strategy and mm-hmm. how, you know, how I run things to be a little more intentional about that. And all of my friends, people I know that are in similar boats with uh, small businesses, certainly probably think about taxes last, if at all, right? Like, you know, I'm a uh, community faculty with um, the business school down in Norman and work with students and, and young entrepreneurs that are just getting started. And there's a, a bunch of focus on growth, right? And then, but not always um, any, uh, or maybe one class on on taxation and kind of that relationship with government, right? There's not, it's a lot of discussion about how to raise money from friends, family, and investors, yeah. and not about how to qualify for incentives. And, you know, mm-hmm. this week on the national level, as we've been talking about the Biden administration's um, student loan forgiveness program that they're rolling out, and then the contrasting it with the PPP loans for me, the thing that stood out was like, I don't care about people getting their loans forgive, forgiven. That's fine. And good for them. I think it would be helpful. But when so many um, folks are saying they don't like that, but they're okay with the PPP loans. I just remember how myself and many others 
struggled through the height of the pandemic when we didn't qualify because some of those groups, you know, sole proprietors didn't qualify. And then we thought we did, then we didn't. And it was, Oh my gosh, sole sole proprietors and solo uh, contractors were in deep trouble. I mean, only the pandemic unemployment assistance was possibly going to help and it didn't help everybody. And it was real eye opening to me how many people are functioning in that limbo where they're officially businesses, but they don't actually have capacity. Um, I mean, that's a huge challenge because um, I, I know I struggled when I ran nonprofit organizations. We grew and I didn't realize there were points at which things changed around our unemployment, our workers comp. There's a change for nonprofits when you hit a certain number of employees. You know, and so I'm that's one of the questions I want to ask small businesses is like, does state taxes impact you when you think about growing your business? You know, I know certainly when you look at employment taxes, that's always an issue because any any person you're paying, you're paying a percentage above that. But to try to look at their if there's specific things hindering. I know my husband was real surprised after he did his improvements to his office and then he, oh, wait, I have to pay property taxes on this. And I think you don't always think of that in your whole picture. Um, in a plan, especially if you're a small business, you know? Yeah. Too many people, I think, uh, subscribe to the Michael Scott school of, of business knowledge where you just, you just declare bankruptcy or you just write things off. We'll just write it off. And you can't, that's not how it works. It's not like you get free computers or or anything. That's not how that works. So that's interesting. I, you know, I just uh, reread the Oklahoma policy institutes. I mean, the masterful tome called a better path, which is all about taxation and revenue in Oklahoma. And that's one I'm using their framework to analyze a lot of this, because one of the big things they look at, you know, number one, do we have the revenue we need as a state to provide the services we need to provide? We're we're growing state. We want to grow more. That's part of our, you know, so-called recipe for success. But do we have the money to do it? Um, They, of course, contend that we don't because we haven't kept up with inflation. But then secondarily, they look at decisions of the past, which I think is helpful when we look at the fact that these things are not organically designed. Somebody made all these decisions, whether now or in the past, um, and they looked at some of the tax cuts that have been done over the last 10 years and how much revenue that's cut out of our budget and how much that skewed the fairness of our tax system. And I was pretty amazed how clearly they drew the line of how much harder and more burdensome our tax system is for people who make less money and for people of color and for rural folks. Um, those uh, folks are paying the most percentage of their income. And so some people think flat tax is fair, but there's actually the way the tax brackets work and the tax exemptions work. You know, people who don't make a lot of money aren't getting a lot of those exemptions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think, you know, the idea of, of you know, a 10%, we'll say 10% flat tax where everybody just pays 10% of their income regardless. That sounds very simple. And it would be if it was implemented with no tax credits either, right? Yeah, no but, deductions either. No yeah, exemptions and deductions. Right. If it's 10%, but you can't deduct anything, there's no exemptions, it's just 10% no matter what. Well, it is proportional then, and that feels right. fair. But if you make you know, $50,000 and you're paying 5,000, that's, that's 10%. Okay. But that leaves you with 45,000 to live on. That's very different than someone who makes 500,000 and maybe they're, you know, they're paying um, 50,000 in taxes, which is a lot more money, but it still leaves them with $450,000 to live on. Well, your quality of life is very different, right? And so there's, to me, there's an argument, a strong argument for the value of a progressive tax system that taxes those with more at a higher rate because it's what's best for our society as a whole. And that, I mean, that's just one man's opinion. Yeah. I mean, we, we almost have a flat tax now because our top tax bracket in this state starts at $7,000 a year, $7,000 a year and up is taxed at the same rate. Um, the, the big difference there is exemptions, deductions, and then credits. Credits are generally smaller, although they affect especially corporations the most, but, but those deductions and exemptions, you know, not everybody's going to get to those standard deduction heights. And so you see a lot of folks who don't get any exemptions or very few exemptions are working, our earned income tax credit. We finally got that refundable again, which is good, but we kept it really low. 
Um, so definitely Policy Institute and others have made the case that as long as we keep that really low, we're not really incentivizing folks staying in the workforce. But the most disturbing number to me that they brought out was how um, taxes have actually risen for low-income Oklahomans, while other, in other states they've dropped. So Oklahoma, the decisions we've made have made a bigger burden uh, for low-income Oklahomans compared to other states. That's wild. Um, in your process of doing this study, has the issue of state question 640 come up yet? Yeah, it comes up a lot. So since 640 requires a supermajority to pass new taxes, I mean, we need to be a lot more careful about cutting taxes. And it really was fascinating this year when um, corporate income taxes came through and some of the other income tax came, the income tax cut came through. Um, there's still only a few voices that really remember what we went through in the last budget crisis and how horrible that was and how painful that was. And I just don't think it's polit politically convenient um, to raise taxes ever. Right. So it has to be a horrible emergency. And, you know, we we are not spending enough to keep up, much less get ahead, you know, with prevention um, we're still spending less, uh, $600 to $2,500 less per student than any of our, our, our neighboring states on education, $600 to $2,500 less per student. Um, we've got to be real that, that, that not putting that money in is going to affect our economy long term. But I kind of feel like it gets difficult when we start talking services and taxes at the same time. Like, I feel like that gets that gets very difficult. Um, but it, it, the same people who pay the more and taxes lose more in services when when there's cuts to state budgets. Yeah, so it's like a double whammy of unfairness on those. Absolutely. Yeah. I do think, and I'm sure for most of our listeners, they might know this, but this is like one of those factoids about Oklahoma tax policy that just was so jarring when I learned it. And I do think about it pretty often about state question 640, um, which you mentioned, but I'm going to reiterate it because yeah, I think it's a point worth hammering home. This was in 19, well, so this is in 1992, um, and it it's because in 1990, there was a pretty big tax increase, and people got mad, right? And I forget all the story about that, but anyway, a big tax increase, and in response, a citizen-led effort to amend the state constitution, a, a, which became a state question, 640, was, they collected signatures, got it on the ballot, and it's one of those things that's like a understandable reaction to the tax increase, but has had far reaching consequences in the future. And Oklahoma is so bad about doing this. We do so many things where we're like, this will solve that problem, but it creates three more down the road. So the, the way that it is in the constitution now is that in order for any revenue raising measure to pass the state legislature and be go into law, it has to be approved by a 75% majority in both chambers. And it's the, that's the only, that's at the highest threshold of anything. So to pass a tax cut, you only need 50% plus one vote, right? So in the mm -hmm. Senate, you need 25 votes out of 48 right. to pass a tax cut, but to pass a tax increase, you have to have 37. And so it's really easy to cut taxes. Plus it's popular. Everyone likes cutting taxes. Woohoo, tax relief, mm -hmm. but it's really hard to raise it. And so, you know, when let's fix this started, it was, it was in reaction to that budget crisis you mentioned in 2016, because the state had a few years before cut taxes because it was popular, right? It was easy to do, but they did it again in a bad way with bad policy that had future ramifications. And those ramifications came to fruition in 2016, 17, and 18, where over, I remember, okay, policies data that over that 10 year period from like 2008 to 2018, I think, um, every state agency had been cut by an average of 40%. And I was like, holy moly, we are doing, I mean, the state had grown a ton in those 10 years and we were having to provide all the same amount of services, mm -hmm. arguably more with about half as much money. And it was like, well, no wonder that we are struggling as a state. No wonder, you know, teachers were leaving people. The disability waiting list was six miles long. Like there was all these big mm -hmm. problems. And, um, and it, in, in 2016, when I started seeing my colleagues furloughed or um, 
uh, or just let go from their jobs because of these bad tax policy decisions from several years prior. I was like, oh, well, maybe we as people should start talking to our state legislators, right? Like you and be like, hey, uh, this is not okay. Like I, I, maybe I was asleep at the wheel, but you made some bad decisions and now we need to talk about it. Yeah. And I, I think people being armed with some information helps with that. I mean, you know, when you hear a lot of folks talking about tax cuts, they talk about one little piece of the pie. And, you know, if we don't talk about the fact that, okay, right now sales tax are the only thing that funds um, city government. Well, that's a huge challenge. That's a huge challenge when we make any exemptions or when we exempt anyone. Um, property taxes are huge. And I get a notice each year from our county assessor about um, we have a disabled veteran um, property tax exemption now that was voted in by the people of Oklahoma. But it used to have an income threshold, a value threshold. And now we are exempting properties. At some point that got changed in the in the legislature. Now we're exempting properties. We have hundreds of properties we're exempting that are over 500000 or over a million dollars. We're exempting their value. Is that what people had in the mind when they thought about poor disabled veterans needed our help and we really want to support them and we're going to exempt their property tax? Now it's millions and millions of dollars not coming into our schools and our career tax and our roads and our security um, because of that decision. And I think when we look at things only piecemeal, we don't get the sense of how those things are connected, you know. The other big thing that I want to that I'm going to be talking about and asking people to talk about is just some of the major myths I hear about taxes and inside the building from lobbyists. We hear a lot of things that imply that lower taxes means a better economy. And so I ask in the expert panel, which is going to be the last event I'm going to have, I'm going to I'm asking them those questions. Like, how do we know that this strengthens the economy or weakens the economy? Yeah, because you can't just be like, well, it feels strong. (laughs) No, feels no. feels robust. And, you know, tax cuts, uh, making the system more fair. The Even the use of the word relief, which has now become used, that's become the major framework um, and actually came from the majority party in, in the legislature using that language. Is that relief? I mean, to me, relief would have been doubling SNAP, giving people more food benefits, that kind of stuff. Um, and I, so I think we have to be careful about the language that we use. Um a lot of people think that tax cuts pay for themselves, that somehow cutting taxes is going to lead to more revenue. And that's never been proven um, that I've seen. So I want to look at some of those myths that seem to get repeated. Um, and I think that we have to talk about the economy in more ways than just gross domestic product, because that's not all it is. It's also about people's well-being. So, right. You yeah, because the economy is more than just how many wells are active at a given time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Well, Senator Kurt, can you remind us again of the dates of your upcoming events? and How can people get involved and share their voice? The first event we're doing is a public event, 6.30 p.m. at the Capitol on September 8th. And that'll be the one that anyone anyone can participate in. I'm especially asking my Senate District 30 folks, but glad to have other folks. Um, September 12th, which is a Monday, we're going to do the small business panel at Francis Tuttle over on Reno. Uh, at 5.30. And then we're doing an expert panel. Um, The ones at the Capitol will be streamed. So the public panel will be streamed and then the other one will be streamed. Um, The expert panel is on the 15th of September at lunchtime and we'll be streaming that. So people can follow my Facebook or they can contact my Senate office and we'll send them a link to be able to 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 follow. Super. Great. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Senator Kurt, thank you so much for being here with us today. Glad to. Glad that you keep keep up the conversation. Well, and I'm going to invite our our next guest to come on now as well. Uh, and our guest is Michelle Tilly, who's with the Yes on 820 campaign, which is related to taxes in some way. So there's some nice overlap here. Um, and, and transparency uh, issues as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, Michelle, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to finally be on here. Uh, well, yeah, well, this is great. And this has been a big week um, or a couple of weeks for the Yes on 820 campaign. And maybe let's start in case listeners don't even know what we're talking about. I'm sure most do, but just in case, um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the campaign? Sure. So um, Yes on 820, Oklahomans for Sensible Marijuana Laws. We're a group of people um, who have been together 
for we started back in 2019 actually working to legalize recreational marijuana in Oklahoma. And the petition that we are currently supporting is state question 820. And our petition would legalize recreational marijuana for adults over the age of 21. It would safely regulate um, and tax those um, recreational marijuana purchases. And we know that um, we're projected projecting it could bring in millions of dollars to our state that we have designated to help fund education, healthcare, and also local governments in our state. I think this is an important thing to, for people to kind of hold in their heads is that it gets billed as like uh, legalized marijuana, but it's not just a marijuana measure. It is uh, it is a education measure. It is a criminal justice reform measure. Like there are pieces of it. It's being used as a tool arguably to help move our state forward on some other issues that we tend to lag on repeatedly. A hundred percent. And um, one of the key components of our um, state question is that it would provide some criminal justice relief. So those that were convicted of minor marijuana offenses in the past um, would be able to apply for expungement of that from their record. And we know that that's going to affect tens of thousands of Oklahomans. Um, It can even possibly affect people who are currently incarcerated and, you know, allow them to release those low level marijuana crimes that have completely ruined their lives for a crime that most Oklahomans don't believe is a crime anymore. Um, You know, most people don't believe people should be in jail for those kind of offenses. Yeah. A few months ago, I was in New York City for uh, an event and I was with a colleague who lives in Atlanta and we walked past a, a dispensary I and mean, you could smell the marijuana smoke. And he's an older guy. He's got kids my age probably. And he mm-hmm. said, he said, what do you think about this? And I was like, well, man, I know back home, you know, like we've got a pretty robust medical marijuana industry. And he was like, oh, never mind. Here's my point. And just, I don't know how we can continue to lock anybody up for marijuana possession when these, you know, dispensers are open around the country like it just makes no sense and i was like i'm with you that's exactly right it does seem like if as a country we are definitely moving on (laughs) on the issue of 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 cannabis and we need to make sure that we bring everybody with us and not continue to leave someone in jail for something that is legal that is unconscionable absolutely and i mean you know we know over and over again this isn't even just about being in jail one time i mean the implications that come from these things are are life changing and they can ruin lives. Um, you know, the fines and the fees and the extra sentences that it can add on to even other issues, um, you know, affect ability to get a job. I was just speaking with someone um, who has a story that this is what happened to her. She had a little bit of marijuana on her in the car and when she was younger and here she is 20 years later, still unable to get certain jobs um, even though that is something that, you know, again, is pretty accept- acceptable here now. And most Oklahomans believe that according to the polling that we've done. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can I mean, I know a bunch of stories. Some of them are very tragic uh, of people who, as, as one guy would say, I got busted for having a bag of reefer mm-hmm. and lost his job, went to a, you know, a pretty downward spiral of depression and um, some other mental health stuff. And then um, ended up uh, taking his own life. And it was like, oh man. And to think about, that was 20 years ago, to think where we are now, where you can, for most folks, you can get a license and walk into dispensary. And now we're talking about, you know, the possibility of uh, of making it av- available for anyone over the age of 21, mm-hmm. uh, which this guy was, is an enormous shift, I think, in the the public opinion and kind of presence around this issue. Most definitely. So we also mentioned tax income or say revenue that this could generate for our state. And I think the last number I saw was that, you know, as of, I think, July of last year of 2021, Oklahoma's marijuana industry had generated, I don't know, a hundred and something million dollars in revenue for the state. It's only been around for a couple of years. So that was a lot of money in a short amount of time. Um, I know that this proposal also kind of creates 
two different tax rates for depending on how someone buys it, if it's medical versus recreational. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what the potential revenue is? Sure. I mean, one of the things that we most definitely did not want to do was affect the current medical program. That is definitely was high on our list. We we know that people use marijuana and cannabis for medical reasons that have been life changing. And so, you know, we wanted to make sure that the recreational program as it comes online will just come up right alongside the current medical program and works hopefully seamlessly together, hopefully strengthening the medical program for those at a lower tax rate of 70, I'm sorry, 7%, not 77%. Um, but the recreational tax will be 15%. And so, you know, that's going to be quite a substantial boom to our state. A lot of money for education, health care for local governments and, and um, others as we're adjusting to the new program. So um, it's a very important, again, for us to preserve and strengthen the medical program, but also to open up the recreational market, um, you know, to people all over the state who you know, don't, and we hear stories all the time, people, they don't want to go that, they don't want to, or don't need to go the extra medical step. Um, and, um, you know, there's also the potential for people in our border states, you know, maybe coming to visit Oklahoma. And so there's a lot of potential growth in this area and the state, the state's going to benefit from it. The people are going to benefit from it. The mention about tourism dollars reminds me of, uh, you know, in the early days, in the early days of the craft beer renaissance <laughs> 20 years ago, I knew a lot of folks who would drive to like Colorado back then for like good craft beer and they would go to the, the craft brewers festival and those kinds of things. Obviously, since then, we've changed our laws in Oklahoma and opened the door to a robust, you know, craft beer um, uh, industry here that's, I think, as good or better than most other states. And, mm. and I think the same thing is happening right now with, with our cannabis industry where um, obviously non-residents can't come in and, and purchase right now, but under this, they could, and that changes the dynamics with our neighbors. Um, I think makes us even more competitive economically with our neighbors uh, and, and potentially more appealing to, to folks who, who want to come in. And we, I mean, we do already know we have, you know, our casinos on the borders bring in um, a lot of tourism into the state. And, you know, this could just be another thing that that also um, will bring people into the state. <laughs> yeah. So um, the campaign collected just a shitload of signatures. <laughs> um, you got this is a this is not a constitutional change. This is a statutory change. That's but you correct. got you got like double the number of signatures you needed. And, and you all are, I think, the first campaign to at least successfully use the new signature collection form. We, that, that is correct. We are to, the first ones who were able to collect the signatures to get to the number we needed to get them turned in. <laughs> other folks have tried, but not got that threshold. And one or two others that have tried. And um, just a little history on that. Um, in 2020, in the midst of COVID, um, the law was changed around petition um, gathering, and um, it uh, allowed for a new process. And that process has changed the form that we use to collect signatures, which sounds a little bit boring, but it has added an extra hurdle into the petition process. And so, um, for example, we used to only have, we used to have 20 signature lines on a page. Now you only have nine. So the cost of printing has gone up substantially. Um, there's a requirement to use a certain weight of paper. So, you know, back in the 788 days, um, one of the ways they were able to be so successful is you had organizers all around the state, just people on their own were printing petitions off the internet and going out and getting their neighbor's signatures. That, those days are gone. You have to use a certain kind of paper. It has to be approved by the Secretary of State and all of these steps. So so the new process has created, you know, extra hurdles to go over. So um, we were very mindful learning from others who have attempted the process. 
Um, we, we were very, very mindful and careful to work with the Secretary of State's office as much as possible to ensure we were right in line with everything they needed for their new procedure. And um, it was a challenge. It was a challenge to gather that many signatures. Um, if you haven't seen the form, there's tiny little boxes and each letter has to go in the box, which is a problem for older people sometimes or, um, you know, others who aren't able to you know, do that fine detailing or see or whatever. So um, it was, and just getting the information asks for is different. So overcoming hurdles with asking people to provide their birthday when that used to not be something that we asked for. Um, it was a challenge, but we, again, learning from past efforts, did our best to train our, all of our gatherers. And as they were out in the field coming back, telling us, oh, well, we're having a problem with this. We'd be like, okay, well, let's readjust, readjust our training. So um, but we were able to get um, over 164,000 signatures in about 60 days um, and, you know, working very hard, knowing we were working to get this on the November ballot. Yeah. Um, listeners may remember uh, a ballot initiative that I ran in 2020, uh, People Not Politicians, about independent redistricting, which is where Michelle and I first met, actually. Mm, yes, yes. Um, and we would have been the first campaign to use that new form at the time. Um, and I remember speaking with Representative Eccles about that bill um, that would change to this new form and being like, hang on, what exactly is happening here? And the idea is that it's it's like a medical billing form. So the idea is that it can be scanned in with software, OCR, optical character recognition software, to make the verification process faster and easier, right? And so previously, in the before times, when a campaign collected signatures, you turn them in to the Secretary of State and they would essentially just count them and confirm the number, but they didn't actually check to see if they, if the people who signed that are registered voters in Oklahoma. This new form and process is supposed to do that all at once. So the what a big change is before they didn't actually confirm it unless someone challenged, um, but now it's done by the Secretary of State's office, or as we'll talk about in a second, their their designee, their contracted uh, entity. And so it's a way to, to I guess, validate that everyone who signed, um, that there's a sufficient number of them who are actually registered to vote. And and the idea, I remember having discussions with, uh, with Eccles and some others back then was that, oh, well, this, you know, it's publicly paid for. The software should be publicly available so that even campaigns could use it to scan it in and it would save on volunteer time of having to manually enter all of these um, signatures uh, and names into you know the campaign's database so they could verify it. Um, but that's not exactly how things have played out, right, Michelle? Nothing close to that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, to give a, a benchmark before we talk ahead, the previous campaigns um, would turn in signatures a, let's say a similar number, right? More than 150,000, 180,000, 200,000 signatures. And those would get counted and then thus confirmed by the Secretary of State in a matter of two to three weeks. Yes. And well, how and long has it taken for them? To a petition our size with, you know, a statutory petition um, historically has really taken five to seven days. Ooh. I mean, it is not, it, do, it did not used to take a super long time, but we were planning on a two to three week window. Um, we were assured by the secretary of state that, and um, we would have two to three weeks of account, maybe even faster with the new software because it was supposed to make things faster. So, um, yes. And the best reference that I've used frequently is, um, the last thing that we all voted on was uh, state question 802, which expanded Medicaid. And in that example, there were 313 signatures thousand signatures turned in and the count took 17 days. And so that was about double the amount of signatures we turned in. So, and it's, and it took about three times as long for y'all, right? Correct. We had so, 48 days from the time that we submitted signatures until we got the signature report. Yeah. And I think we mentioned this on the podcast a few weeks ago, but part of the change here that was a surprise, I think, to most of us is that the Secretary of State's office is not the ones who are handling the signature verification. They have contracted that out to a third party 
um, and, and it's called like Western Petition Systems or something. It's essentially it's a, a affiliate of the folks that own Sooner Poll, the polling firm, mm-hmm. um, Bill Shepard and and them, and he kind of started this, and it's a three hundred thousand dollar a year contract. Whether or not there's any signatures to verify, they get that money, which I think is absolutely absurd and morally wrong. <laughs> um, and uh, and so this is the first one that they've done. And it took, as we said, three times as long for only half as many signatures. Um, and last, I guess it was last week, the Secretary of State said, okay, well, the signatures are valid, you guys can proceed. You're not on the ballot yet. You can proceed to the next step. The problem is that the drop dead deadline is like, is coming up relatively soon. There's some disagreement about when that is though, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And I mean, the count again did take much, much longer than anticipated. And that was extremely disappointing. Um, We finally did receive our the report from the secretary of state's office saying that we had 117,000 valid signatures, um, according to their procedures. And when we needed 94,000, so, you know, we don't want to minimize the fact that we're excited about that. We know we're going to the ballot eventually. Um, you know, we, we got over way over the amount we needed. Um, but of course we went into this, always wanting to make the November 2022 ballot. You know, again, we did everything that we could to work with the Secretary of State's office to ensure we were on a normal track to make that ballot. But with the count being delayed so long, we've run up against this deadline you're talking about that the election board has for printing, actual physical printing and design of their um, voter databases and all of those things um, for the November general election. And that deadline, as we were told, was um, August the 26th, which is today. Um, But, you know, after the the report is submitted from the Secretary of State to the court saying, here's the number of valid signatures they have, there's still a 10-day period that has to occur that allows people to contest signatures if they don't, if they want to make a contest on the signatures and for the court to settle out the ballot title and what's going to act, you know, what it's going to say. Now the ballot title issue has been largely resolved in that the general fight happens between the the attorney general's office and whatever the campaign is. We actually were pleasantly surprised the attorney general released our ballot title early, even before the count was finished. Um, And we were fine with what he wrote. We didn't find it controversial. We felt like it was in line with the petition. And so we had no plans to challenge that. So it comes down to um, the signature challenge and those historically are don't happen. And if they do, they're resolved rather quickly. So, you know, by our estimation at the end of the day, we're going to miss this uh, August 26th deadline, which is today, um, by not very many days. And um, it's clear under state law that once you submit a petition to the state, it is supposed to be voted on in the next general election, which is November 2022. And so, with the election board um, saying they couldn't print it, we filed a writ with or an application for a writ asking the court to intervene and order the election board to go ahead and prepare state question 820 to be on the ballot. Yeah, that's um, it's so frustrating. I mean, the, the ballot initiative process in Oklahoma is so arduous like it takes so long it is we have one of the highest thresholds for the number of signatures required and you have to get them in one of the shortest time frames of any state that has the ballot initiative process and then there's all these other hoops so i know like with with the the people not politicians campaign i had a spreadsheet with like multiple zones set up so you could put in the the date and it would automatically calculate you know, the kind of benchmark dates mm-hmm. for when we would hit certain things. Mm-hmm. And then I had to like build multiple ones because there's a bunch of them that are just variable that like you're subject to the signature counting process or the court doing something. And so I had like quick, you know, medium, slow mm-hmm. and very slow 
and every time something would happen, I would update it to like <laughs> recalculate our, our time frame because it took us um, like 300 days from the date that we filed the, the petition to when we were authorized to start collecting signatures. And it was like, holy cow, like we thought it would be, I don't know, about 100 days less than that. And, and trying to plan out, you know, what's going to happen a year from now is really tough. And you don't want to do it too soon, but you also don't want to wait too long because you want to kind of hit the right time frame for signature collection and all of these other kind of hoops you have to jump through. Of course, we didn't anticipate a global pandemic happening in the midst of all of that. Um, so today, I guess, was also the date of the the hearing before the court, right, for that application for writ. Um, I don't know if you were able to listen in or do you, and there, I know there's no way to like know how it goes necessarily, but um, unless the referee just like curses you out and they don't usually <laughs> do that. <laughs> well, I mean, first I just want to talk about and say thank you for sharing your story because that is one of the discussions we're having right now. And we want people to realize there's this narrative running out at the Capitol that, you know, people are just coming in with all these petitions and changing everything and, and all of that. And that somehow petitions are running amok in this state. There's been nine successful ballot initiatives since 1995. I mean, this is not an easy process. This this issue, we started in 2019. My daughter was in junior high when we started this. There's a potential she'll be in college by the time it's over, legitimately. So, you know, this isn't an easy process. This isn't one person outdoing anything. This takes a lot of people, a lot of time, a lot of money. So, um, and that is one of the arguments we made to the court today. And yes, I was actually moving on to a second, your question. Um, I was actually in the room today. I am the petition, one of the petitioners on this. So technically it's, it's under my name, uh, the application. And so I was able to be in, in the courtroom today for the arguments with the, um, referee of the court and, um, you know, that's one of the things we argued. This is a sacred right, sacred right. This is a First Amendment right. This is one of the first rights in our state constitution. And, um, you know, by virtue, generally, if you're bringing a petition, it's because the people in power aren't taking action on that. And so they're not necessarily inclined to help you. <laughs> right. And the whole point of the petition process is for the people's voice to be heard and for them to be able to challenge unjust laws. And so, you know, the court generally has sided on the historically has sided on the side of trying to expeditiously get petitions um, to a vote of the people. And so we're hoping that that is going to be the result from this. Um, but we won't know for sure until we anticipate maybe a decision from them on Monday or Tuesday. Yeah, that's good. It's it's uh, it's frustrating. It feels very powerless when you just have to like plead your case and hope that they accept your you know hail mary there. Mm -hmm. In a I'll say a worst case scenario mm -hmm. where they don't side with you and they say, "Yep, sorry, you know we got to print these ballots and we don't want to include it." Um, it would mean that the question still goes ahead. It just goes to the next election at the latest, right? So the latest it would be on the ballot is November of 2024, which That's is correct. a long time from now. Um, but the governor could also set a special election sooner than that, right? That's true. That is true. Um, you know, after the 10-day period is over, then we will be eligible for any potential ballot that happens between now and November of 2024. If the governor were to sit on it and take no action whatsoever, then November 2024 would be um, when it would go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's already speculation of if you would put it on a primary ballot or a presidential primary ballot. Um, but it's also like you know, the, the I guess the political strategy here, right, is that the party in power doesn't want to do anything that could compromise their ability to hold on to power right now today right like and often this is very short-sighted kind of as we discussed with senator kurt earlier about short-sighted tax policy our state has mm -hmm. and so this year it's a gubernatorial election all the statewide offices are up um, both u.s senate seats are up i think there's some pretty high stakes that they are trying to factor into their calculus and um 
the flip side is that if they waited two more years, it would be on the presidential election and, you know, all the congressional seats are up again. All these things um, have the potential to still be uh, a very impactful election. And so they're really trying to play a game of chance to some degree, because another two years gives, gives you all two more years to campaign for this to really spread even further and then potentially have even higher turnout, right? If people are really excited about it. And so a delay could in some ways backfire on them at least a little bit. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things that we are pointing out constantly is this is a super interesting coalition that we've built because it, we have, we have very, very far right people and very, very far left people and everybody in between. I mean, there are Republicans and independents and Democrats. So there are this issue. We had people from all 77 counties sign our petition, all political parties, ages 18 to 102, and it's pretty evenly spread. And so I think it's a huge miscalculation um, to think that this is somehow, you know, in their favor because people are, are angry. They, they, this is an inevitable vote that is going to happen. I mean, we've already have 788 in the state um, and it's just a matter of when. And so um, I think, I do think that they are underestimating the intensity that there is among voters to get this done. And especially again, with the revenue attitudes have changed about um, the issue of marijuana and they see that revenue there and they see their public schools are struggling for funding and they see their local healthcare is, are struggling for funding. They see their small town. My sister is, um, you know, actually is a city clerk down in a small town in rural Oklahoma. And, you know, they're struggling revenue wise, but they have, you know, um, marijuana businesses in town that have re-roofed their senior citizens building and bought a new police car because they couldn't afford it. And so, you know, I think it is a huge miscalculation to underestimate how big of an issue this is for most Oklahomans. Yeah, what a what a f- strange world where now the uh, revenue from marijuana sales are purchasing police cars. Not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Well, yeah, I mean, if it was on the ballot this year and things got implemented, you know, relatively quickly, then like by the time the 2024 elections roll around, we could already be looking at tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of extra income for the state, which would allow, you know, lawmakers to spend that money in ways that is advantageous for their their voters. That's so, correct. We'll I mean, we have certain we have certain, you know, percentages designated towards those issues that we're talking about so that they will be guaranteed to go to those areas. But there is a percentage that will go into the general revenue fund that the legislature does get to divvy out as they they need for other things. So, I mean, we really, really did try to put thoughtful effort talking to all different kinds of parties involved, including the legislators themselves. Um to come up with a program that really was going to be a safe program that's going to be well-regulated, that's going to tax at, a, at an appropriate level and bring revenue into the state and allow for, um, you know, recreational marijuana sales to happen here. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, Michelle, uh, thank you so much for being on the show today and, and catching us up to date on what's happening with, uh, with state question 820. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I appreciate this forum because you got a lot of good information coming through here. Thank you. Well, thanks. Listeners, thank you for being here as well. I hope this has been helpful to you. Thanks to our guest earlier, Senator Julia Kurt. Um, We will be on vacation next week. Well, I will be on vacation. So the podcast will be on vacation. Um, I think Scott and Bailey are already looking forward to two weeks off in a row. But we should be back on the 9th um, to catch you up on everything that's happened between now and then. Potentially, we'll have a ruling decision about the 820 campaign as well. Um, Listeners, if you are interested in getting involved with voter registration and helping increase turnout this year, um, golly, please, please, please go to letsfixthis.org slash volunteer and sign up. Um, Once we get past Labor Day, you're going to get emails from me with opportunities and we're really trying to like empower volunteers to take the lead on this. So if you want to host a voter registration drive, you want to knock doors, um, you want to do anything like that, 
we need you. We need you. Oklahoma can no longer. We just can't continue being the last in voter participation, right? It's it's hurting us. We are hurting. Um, and the way to fix that, the quickest, is to show up at the polls. So we need your help. Um, I will buy you pizza. Whatever we got to do um, to get get our uh, our our word out there and to get people to the polls, we want to do it. So let's fix this.org/slash volunteer. Uh, because as we say every week, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a good week. <laughs>